1: It is not God's ideal, right? To to say it another way, when we get into the kingdom of God, we're not going to be stoning to death our disobedient children and various other sorts of things. And we see this in the law itself, as Deuteronomy is a repetition of the laws given in Exodus. So literally, Deuteronomy means like the second law. And so the, the story goes... Their uh, Israelites are freed from Egypt. They then go out into the desert. They're supposed to follow Yahweh into the promised land. And and the book of Deuteronomy tells you at the very beginning, this was an 11-day journey. And here we are in the book of Deuteronomy 40 years later. So you know, something has gone terribly wrong. 11-day journey. Meanwhile, 40 years later, here we are still outside of the land waiting to go in. And so here, Moses, who is also not going to be able to go into the land, stands on the outside of the Jordan, looking out into the land, and he stands before the people, and he gives them the law a second time. This is the Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Now, what we miss completely as modern readers is we read Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers and some of the law codes in Exodus as like constitutions or like this book that they had that they would go refer to as like, oh, yeah, let's go check the law. I don't know. Let me see. What does it say? But in reality, Deuteronomy is a narrative. Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, the law, the Torah from Genesis to Deuteronomy, which is what the law actually means. It's not just the laws. It's Genesis to Deuteronomy, is a narrative. It is a story. And so the question is not, hey, what are the laws that we can pull out of the story and apply to our lives? The question is, what's the moral of the story? What is the narrator trying to get across? What are they trying to say? And so, at the beginning of this, what Moses does is he stands outside, gives the law a second time, and the narrator places you, the reader, inside of the land, in the future. And so, we are, as the reader, looking back on what Moses proclaimed to that people who were outside of the land. And we are invited into that in a way that like the narrator does this really beautiful work of knitting us together into the story of the people of Israel. And so the way that they'll do this is he'll do some funny things with the pronouns. And so he'll say, hey, your father's back on Mount Sinai. They did this, and you did it too. And so the you then is like the second generation about to go into the land. And what's happening is the narrative is inviting the you, the me, the reader, into that second generation for per- perpetuity. Don't be like your fathers. Act differently, behave differently. And so, what do I mean when I say that the law code is God's concession? God's ideal for all of creation is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It is a good humanity living in a good world, spreading blessing and flourishing throughout a good creation. That is the ideal. What God is now doing is he is conceding the fact, okay, the ideal is gone, and we're gonna one day get it back, but until then, how am I gonna deal with these people? And so he will uh, humble himself and deal with them in various ways that are not what God would ideally do, but in dealing with sinful humanity, he's going to concede and do anyways. And so in this land of violence and empire, how is it that God is going to invite this people to live? And this is exactly what Jesus himself does when he interprets the law. So, Jesus is asked a question about divorce. Y'all remember this part of the story? Right? So, Jesus is hanging out. Some people come up, roll up on him. Hey, What do we do about divorce? And there's like this this historic teaching that rabbis have like interpreted this law and what do we do about divorce over and over and over again? And they're essentially asking Jesus, like which side of this are you on? Who's right? Which school of thought is the correct interpretation of this law? And what does Jesus do? He goes back to Genesis, and he quotes from chapter one, then he quotes from chapter two, so you get these two creation accounts. He quotes from the first one, then he quotes from the second one, and he says, that was the ideal, and then he says, but because of your hardness of heart, Moses permits you to get a divorce. And so, like, implanted in that, and if you go and you read Deuteronomy, it does not say, hey, because of your hardness of heart, you're going to have, you're going to be able to get a divorce, It says, no, when you divorce someone, here's how you ought to do it. So what Jesus is doing, he is saying, no, 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 that's not the ideal. But because I know that we don't live in an ideal world and you are not an ideal people, when it happens, here's how you ought to go about doing it. This is the concession idea that we're talking about. So Jesus shows us that the law in Deuteronomy is a concession rather than the ideal. And so how does the law actually work? Okay, we we good? Because I know I'm like, I really am out on a limb this morning. Like, we're gonna spend our Sunday morning talking about law codes. Are we are we tracking so far? Y'all seem super engaged, but I also know all the coffee was drink drunk drinking drinking. So that's probably part of it. Y'all are like, yes, we've always wanted to, like an hour on doing right. This is great. So how does the law actually work? All right, it's a narrative, and this is this is actually revolutionary for how you can understand it. Because the narrative in Deuteronomy is actually playing off the narrative in Numbers, which is playing off the narrative in Leviticus, which is playing off of Exodus, which is playing off of Genesis, and the narrator is the same narrator throughout the entire Hebrew Bible. And the narrator will pop in and say some things and, give you, and tell the story in a certain way that, like, if we are living in 2023, it is the Marvel Universe, And you're going to have Easter eggs, and you're going to have callbacks, and all of that is meant to paint this picture of like, oh, I see like the reality underneath the story. And as modern readers, we want to know the history on the story, but what the story is actually doing is it's like, no, 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 ignore the history, or at least like, I'm going to use the history to get to the reality underneath the surface that actually really matters, It's the theology that it tries to communicate. So what does Deuteronomy do? It takes us back to Genesis over and over and over again in very different ways. And that for the people to be truly righteous, they are not meant to just simply rotely follow the law. Hey, it says this, so I won't do it. I'm good. But they're supposed to, right? This is Psalm chapter 1, Psalm uh, 119. They're to take the law, right, which again is the first five books, and they're to meditate on it. One of the laws is the king of Israel. Hey, you're not supposed to have a king, but when you do, because, right again, concession, that king is to write his own law, and he's going to take it, and he's going to read it in the morning, and he's going to read it at night, and he's going to meditate on it over and over and over and over again, not so that he has memorized all of the do's and don'ts, but so that he can become someone like Solomon, who's when faced with an issue that is not in the law, has the wisdom and the ability to, to sort the issue out, bring peace to the issue, bring uh, shalom into the issue without necessarily following the law. You smell what I'm stepping in? Okay, so the, the law was not a, they didn't understand it as something that they were just gonna like read it, understand it, follow it. There's tons of stuff that's not in there and there's tons of stuff that's in there that they wouldn't do. Because no one's dragging their kid out and murdering them when you tell them to brush their teeth and they don't brush their teeth. Like, that's just not how they did it. Because also in the law is, hey, your God is a merciful God for thousands of generations. You ought to also be merciful. They would have understood this as they enacted the law. It's also why they bring judges in, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. That goes really well. That's sarcasm. They bring judges in who are supposed to meditate on this law and then kind of like help the people live into it as well. And so what is it that this law actually says? It's what we've been saying over and over and over again for the last several weeks. There are two ways in life. There's a way of life and there's a way of death. There's a way in life that leads to blessing and there's a way in life that leads to cursing. There's a way in life that is filled with grace and there's a way in life that's filled with violence and if you follow Yahweh, he will invite you into this way of life and you will be a weird people, a different people, a unique people, the Hebrew calls it a holy people, a set apart people because your God is a weird God. God. He's a holy God. He's not like those gods that you left in Egypt, and he's not like the gods in the land that you're going to in Cana. He is an entirely different God who is merciful and gracious, filled with justice. And so what the law does is it helps form and shape the imagination of the people into people who live into the way of life instead of death. And I wanna highlight this um, by dealing with a difficult law really the question is living into this way of death is what's been done over and over and over again and if you if you follow this storyline through the old testament through the the pentateuch the first five books what you get is hey we've got a good creation that's ruined very first story relationship with humanity is so broken that brother murders brother what does god do to the murderer he gives him grace Fast forward, the the world has become so violent that humanity, all it wants to do is violate and oppress and fill the earth with blood. So God is going to cleanse it, but what does He do in grace? He maintains Noah and his family. And then Noah gets off the boat, and you realize that Noah is exactly like everyone else before him, and you see more violence and more oppression, and on and on and on and on and on it goes. And so you get to the book of Deuteronomy and now you have this people who are living outside of the land, who are coming into the land and both Leviticus and Deuteronomy are gonna, hey, and the land is filled with these people and you're gonna go and eradicate them all. And we hear this story and it's very unsettling to us and like, can we acknowledge that it's rightly very unsettling to us? If you're reading those passages and you're like, yeah, we should go kill them all. Whoa, 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 hold on. Like, pump the brakes a little bit. And can I also suggest that the reason we read them and go, wait, what is because of Jesus? And so we ought to ask ourselves, like, wait, how is Jesus reading these laws? And if Jesus is the God who is giving these laws, what are we to make of these laws? And how did the early church, the spirit-filled early church, read the the laws? And wait, what does the New Testament do with these laws? Because they actually quote them several times. And so there's a a couple of things that I want to do here to deal with some of the violence um i want to look at deuteronomy 7 so if you've you've got your bible if you do great great if not you can pull out your phone or open up one that's in front of you turn to deuteronomy chapter 7 you can also find this in leviticus 18. but one of the things that happens here is is as this violence spreads throughout through the world um, the the hebrew bible begins to describe it in terms of violation or defilement So that the land, uh, some of your translations will translate it as corruption. The land will experience corruption. The land will experience defilement because of the violence that's being done. And Leviticus 18 couches it this way, that the people have become so violent and have spread this corruption to this extent that the land is now so sick of their violence that it's ready to vomit them out. And so uh, we'll come back to that in just a second. But this idea of the way of death, the way of the snake, the way of, like, empire is this way of violence, we all understand, and we've talked about a lot the last couple of months, that 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 is not the way of God, and God will not tolerate it forever. Like, God will not just sit back and let oppressors continue to oppress without eventually stepping in and doing something. And so we get to Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to take possession of it. And he drives away many nations from before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. Now, this should be your first clue. If you've been reading the Hebrew Bible, this number pops up quite a bit, seven, seven, seven. Maybe it's just coincidentally that it happened to be seven nations, or maybe something else is going on here that is thematic. Verse two, and when your, the Lord your God turns them over to you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. Right. So, in theological world, we call this the ban, which sounds pretty intense. If you're like a death metal band, the ban would be your death metal band name. Um, but watch this. Right. So, what, what do you? What would you guess utterly destroy means? Yeah. Yeah. Like utterly destroyed. Like, how, how much? Give me a percentage of how, how much destroyed they ought to be. Yeah, 100%, right? Super clear. The Bible's literal and super crystal clear. It's simple. It's fine. Utterly destroy them, 100% destruction. Um, okay. You shall, make a, you shall not make a covenant with them. With who? Nor should you be gracious to them. In fact, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. You shall not take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me, and they will serve other gods, and the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. And all of a sudden, you realize that, wait a second, something else is going on here. So either God is like saying something to them hyperbolically or or just knows they're not going to do it, which is one explanation that I've heard. I tend to like the hyperbolic one, and here's why. And this is also like, what do you do with all the capital punishments in the law? I think this is kind of the same solution to that problem. Y'all remember back in the garden, Adam and Eve. Hey, here's this garden. I'm giving you all of these trees. Eat from them, enjoy them. But this one tree, don't eat. Because what? On the day you eat from it, you will die. Last time I checked, that's a capital punishment. On the day you eat of it, you will be utterly destroyed. Are Adam and Eve utterly destroyed on the day they eat from it? Do they die on the day they eat from it? Well, spiritually, right, right. Absolutely. I get that. But, like, do they actually die on the day that they eat from it? No, it's like 786 years later or something like that. Because God is a merciful and a gracious and a patient God, giving mercy and grace to thousands of generations. And so when we read things like, go in and utterly destroy them, um, one, we read this in the context of the Pentateuch, which has suggested that these people have been doing some pretty awful things for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and that God, much like in the flood narrative, is going to use violence to interrupt their violence, but then two, this is not genocide because these are the same people that you're not supposed to make a covenant with and you're not supposed to intermarry with, and Israel will, by the way, because they're awesome and they listen all the time. That's right, so this is not as straightforward and as simple, and I know that's still complicated in so many different ways, um, but I wanna just introduce us to that. I want to read a couple of quotes here on violence because I think this is important for us to understand this idea of God's condescension and concession. And we think about the salvation of the world here, right? That the the single act of redemption itself is a violent act, not from God, and yet God uses the violent act to redeem the entire world. And like if that can be our framework for coming back and and putting this on how we read these stories, I think that alone could be really helpful. But if there were no human violence, there would not be divine violence. God is not just in God's character a violent deity, which is an extreme contrast to the ancient Near Eastern gods who were war gods and violent and mongers of various kinds and so there's a great article out there by a guy named Terence E. Freetham. Um, I can maybe link it, or if you're interested, you can email me, I'll send it to you. It was great, easy to read, it's like seven pages long, super fantastic. But he says this, God's use of violence, inevitable in a violent world, is intended to subvert human violence in order to bring the creation along to a point where violence is no more. So I want to be like super clear here. This is not God saying, "Oh no no no, violence is cool sometimes." This is God saying, "No no, violence is always awful." But the world is so awful, and I refuse to not like work in and with humanity. So that I at sometimes, in like just cornered, and I'm like, "I guess we're gonna have to deal with violence here." Walter Brueggemann, a, a great pacifist, Old Testament professor, like he is just a wise, fantastic human being. We would accuse him of, of, or some people would accuse him of being like liberal and woke and yada, yada, yada. He, even he says this, it's likely that the violence assigned to Yahweh is to be understood as counter-violence, which functions primarily as a critical principle in order to undermine and destabilize humanity's ongoing violence. And I think of like so many like real life metaphors for this. It's like these flash fires where the, it's, the fire is so intense that the only way to put it out is by this explosion of fire that sucks all the oxygen out and so it puts the fire out, right? There's, there's that. There's also like the unfortunate and incredibly violent reality that we've all lived through in the last couple of years where in two instances we've had uh, mass shootings, and in one, we've criticized the police for not going in and using violence to stop more violence from happening in a school. In the other, we uh, heard of or saw video of officers quickly going in and unfortunately and violently putting down a shooter as they were in the act of trying to kill more innocent people. Does God look down on that and go, that's good? Of course not. But in that situation, we would all acknowledge that to not act in that moment would have not been good either. And could they have used other methods? And yet, right, we can have those conversations. This is an illustration. But I love this. Listen to this. This is from Brueggemann as well. God chooses to become involved in our violence so that evil will not have the last word. And in everything, including violence, God seeks to accomplish loving purposes. By so participating in our messy stories, God takes the road of suffering and death and humiliation, and through such involvement, God absorbs the effects of our sinful human efforts and thus suffers violence God's self. That God is not a violent God, that somehow God works in and with humanity who are a violent people, and that in the end, God redeems our violence by taking violence upon himself. And in this, God does not condone or excuse our violent behavior, but instead, he moves us all, humanity, the world, towards redemption, towards peace, not by eradicating us, which would be one solution to the problem. Y'all are so violent, I'll just get rid of you and start over. But instead, by making us holy, by making us nonviolent people, by shaping our hearts, in a way that makes us different. And so this leads us to our main second point. What in the world are we supposed to do with the law as Christians? I want to offer you a little bit of insight on what the law has to say to us. Um, But it's simply this. There's a way of life and there's a way of death. And that stands true today in this moment. That when Jesus shows up and he offers his kingdom, what he is offering is the way of life. And those who are wrapped up in the empire and in the power and in the violence, it like does not compute. And yet the poor and the needy and the oppressed, all of a sudden they get it. And this is ultimately a way of love. This way of life is a way of love of God. We saw it in our text that we read this morning. It's a way of allegiance. It's a way of love of God, love of neighbor and it will be radically different than what we see. So we, much like Israel, are called to be an alternative community, that there should be something about us that is really weird and strange in really redemptive ways, not weird and strange like in a Westboro Baptist way, like where people know us by our hatred, but where people know us, what does Jesus say, by your love for one another. And they love each other even when they shouldn't love each other. They like care for each other when they have no business caring for each other. They elevate each other when they shouldn't be elevating. Those people are weird. And then they love their neighbors without expecting their neighbors to do anything back to them. And they love their enemies. Even though their enemies are trying to destroy them, they don't then in turn destroy them. They love them instead. And it's this strange community of love. And so what the New Testament authors do is they take all this language of violence and they turn it upon This uh, nature, this fleshly nature that lives in accordance with this world of violence. And they say, you want to conquest something? You want to put something to death? Put to death your flesh. Conquer your flesh. Right? And that is just a, that's not like the physical body. That is the the theological word where they're importing all of this, the way of violence into the world. And so loving God and choosing life is always going to be contextualized. Like I wish we could just give you some rules of like, hey, here's, here's what you need to do. Uh, but that's not how this works. Our God is a relational God and what we have to do day in and day out is show up and be present and ask the question of God, what, what do you need from me today? How can I best love you and love my neighbor today? And in, in some cases that might look different than it did the day before. But ultimately it means that we're gonna give our allegiance to a different set of values. And one of the, the, the core pieces of this is taking ourselves out of the center and putting Jesus there. Not because Jesus demands it, but because when we do, somehow we find life. And in loving God and loving neighbor, the contextualization of this means that we follow a living and active God, not a book. I love the scriptures, I read the scriptures every day, the scriptures are fantastic, but they, if they are not pointing you and directing you to the, the God who is Jesus Christ, the Pharisees spent their entire lives studying the scripture and Jesus stands before them and says you've given your lives to studying this and you don't know me. We can know the Bible, study the Bible, love the Bible and miss Jesus, that is very possible. Mastering rules or theology is always going to be easier than following God. Because we can control it, and then we can weaponize it. And we can create an us, and we can create a them, and yet Jesus seems to explode all of those categories, right? And then lastly, because this is contextualized, it means that following God is scary, It means we actually like have to talk and listen and trust and obey even when it doesn't make sense. And that's really, really hard. And so we take comfort in this and all of this, that knowing that this God who invites us to follow him into this way of life that is radically different and will sometimes seem costly and will often seem backwards as a self-giving God who's assured us that life is found in him and in following him and is not found in following the fill in the blank that you'll find outside of him. This is what this old, ancient, archaic list of rules and stories can do for us. Let's pray.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.